for you because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The oaths of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumble are girded with strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even even the barren has born seven, and she who has who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and he makes alive. He he brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ashes to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You know, that's not exactly what I would have said at that point. Wow! What is her attitude in this prayer or song or whatever you want to call it? <coughs> Praising God. What's her mood? <coughs> Thanksgiving. Joyful. Wow. Look at what she says. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. I rejoice in the Lord. You know, I think I would have been begging God, please be with my son and please let me come back and, and see him more often. And I'll, No, she's just praising and thanking God. And why is she rejoicing in the Lord? Verse 1, why is she rejoicing in the Lord? It's almost like, uh, like when that other woman used to take one of her by her getting the son, it's like, like God, like exalted her over her, her, her. Exactly. God has done this wonderful thing in her behalf. He, she, ha, he has delivered her. She says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. The horn is the idea of, of the strength of the animal. Don't think of a musical horn. Think of an animal horn. The idea that he's lifted up her strength. You know, he's done this great thing for her. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Uh, I don't know if the Pinina might fit in that category. Because I rejoice in your salvation. She sees God as the one who's the great deliverer, the great savior. And, and she, she praises him and she thanks him. Now this becomes sort of the song of the horn. Because you have that in verse 1 and then we're going to come back to that again at the end of this, at the end of verse 10. So it's God is the one who's got the power. He raises up our strength. And then in verses 2 and 3, she praises the Lord for what? He's a God of knowledge. All right, his knowledge and his holiness and... He is a unique. His uniqueness is being incomparable and. All I'm here really said he was going to do. 
Yeah, you could trust him. And what else does he praise God for in verse 2? He's solid. He's a rock. God is a rock. He's strong. He's stable. He's secure. You can trust him. They got water out of the rock in the wilderness. Maybe it's even the idea he's the, the rock of provision. But, but he's a, he, you know, he, you just never have to worry about God, where God's going to be. You can always count on him. So she praises God for his salvation, his deliverance in verse 1, for God's character, his attributes in verses 2 and 3. And then look at verses 4 to 8. What does she praise God for here? His power to do what? Anything he wants, and what does he want? Yeah. God is the God who inverts things. He's the great reverser. Isn't that kind of what he's saying? Uh, he takes the strong people, and he brings them down. And he takes the weak people, and he lifts them up. You know, verse 4, the bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble go on straight. Verse 5, those who were full hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry ceased to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes, etc. You know, the Lord is the God who's got so much power that he takes the proud, arrogant, self-sufficient people, and they're on the bottom. And he takes the people who have nothing, and he brings them up to the top. And she's exhibit A. Because she had nothing. Not a child. And God has given this to her. So she praises God and rejoices God as the God who's able to drastically change the circumstances that people find themselves in. He lifts the needy, raises the poor from the dust, verse 8, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor because God's the owner of the world. And he can do anything he wants to. What a tremendous God we serve. And, you know, you ever thought about this? In the New Testament, what kind of people did Jesus always seem to really bless? What kind of people did he always attract? What kind of people did he give great promises to? Poor what about spiritually, what kind of people? Humble. The people who had nothing and acknowledged that. The, the people who were very good and really prided themselves on how good they were were not the ones that God blessed. We think sometimes to be right with God, I've got to impress God. I've got to just really show God how great I am. That's really not true. We need to humble ourselves and show God how much we need it. That God responds to need, not worthiness. And then in verses 9 and 10, look at what God will do. He keeps the feet of his godliness. You know, he, he directs the course of their life. But what does he do with the wicked ones? Let me cut off. Because it doesn't matter about their power. It's God's power that determines everything. So if you contend with the Lord, verse 10, you'll be shattered. And he'll thunder against you. But he'll give strength to his king. And he'll exalt the horn of his anointing. 
the anointed king of God, he will raise up. So she praises and rejoices in God because of his deliverance, because of his attributes, because of what he does, and because of what he will do. That's what she's thinking when she brings her son and gives him to the Lord's service. She's kind of an amazing woman, don't you think? She learned a lot during those years of suffering. I'm going to say a few more things, but I'll open that up for you. What comments and thoughts do you have? <coughs> yes, Travis. Uh, it, it's just so encouraging to see uh, Hannah in her time of giving something that she loves more than anything on this earth to praise God when so often when we give him something small, we count it as a burden. And her faith is so much stronger in giving so much more in something that we lack. Yeah, poor me, you know, I had to do this really great thing for God. That was really hard. You know, she doesn't think of it that way. It is a blessing, it's a privilege to be able to give great things to God. We couldn't do it if he hadn't given them to us. And when we can give them back to him, we should rejoice in that. Great point. Other thoughts? Larry? You know, Garrett, there's a saying that says, the hand is the rock and cradle rule of the world. Uh, I think it's a good illustration of the fact that, I mean, God bless Hannah with, you know, so many times we want our children to become this and be successful in this. You know, maybe we, we think about changing this country through politicians, but man, when we, if, you, if we can raise godly children and raise them up and, and, and think about what a great thing that is, we truly, in that sense, a mother truly does rule the world through her dedication to God. So it's pretty awesome, this story. Amen. Great point. Other thoughts? Jake? Uh, you may comment on this, but uh, I think that Hannah's prayer here really introduces kind of the major themes of the book. I mean, this is precisely, this, this reversal is what David will go through. Saul is, is lofty and gets brought down. Uh, and, and this is kind of the pattern always with God's people, but especially in these stories. No doubt. And thank you for saying that. You know, there's something even broader in this that might, we might ought to think about. I don't know how much, when we read books like 1 Samuel, or 1 and 2 Samuel, how much we look at them in an overall sense. A lot of times we just sort of limit ourselves to minutely examining a verse or two, or maybe one story. But if you looked at the book of Sam, books of Samuel, and you kind of studied them as a, as, as a unit, it's kind of interesting. This song, if you want to call it that, chapter 2, is really parallel to the third to the last chapter of the books of Samuel. 2 Samuel 22 is a psalm of David in which he speaks of his horn, he speaks of God as a rock, he speaks of God's deliverance, he ends the psalm by talking about God's anointed, and it's like those two songs or psalms are kind of bookends for the books of Samuel. This is what it's all about. The books of Samuel are really talking about the power of God and how he intervenes and reverses things. How he raises up the lowly and brings down the proud. And, and, and by starting and ending that unit with these two psalms, it really kind of helps you see the light in which you ought to see everything in the book. It would help us a lot if we do more reading of books as units, or in the case of Samuel, they're both kind of a unit together. 
Sometimes we get too bogged down in the trees to ever notice the forest. Justin. I think that's how Hannah's able to have this attitude in this time is because of the understanding <coughs> she has of, of God's ability and God's power. Yeah. Amen. Other thoughts? Okay. Good, good comments. Thank you for those. Um, so, what's going to happen? Well, it's going to be interesting. The interplay between Samuel and Eli's sons. And by the way, we are going to go a little while in this first segment. So as I said to start with, when you need to get up and use the bathroom or whatever, they're down the hall. And you can do that. You won't interrupt us and it won't disturb us. We can concentrate despite that. Not everybody could use them all at the same time and we will take a break eventually. So just do that whenever you need to. Nobody looks sleepy yet. That'll probably come tomorrow or whenever. But if you are, you are always welcome to stand up. Just try to go where you're not blocking somebody's vision. But, but we're not going to be disturbed by those kind of things. So uh, whatever you need to do with that is great. Would somebody read 11 to 17? Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah. But the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not do the Lord. And the custom of the priest with the people, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with the meat while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. It's interesting, the interplay, because you got this statement about Samuel in verse 11. What's Samuel doing? Serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. Now you've got the statements about the sins of Eli. Not so good. What were they doing? <coughs> yeah, they really were. What were they doing? They were taking God's parts of the sacrifices. They kind of used strong arm tactics to cheat God out of the parts of the sacrifice that belonged to him. Like they just put in their their fork and, and just take a part of the sacrifice that was being boiled, whatever part they wanted. Even before they burned the fat, they would just take the parts of the meat they wanted. What do you know about sacrifices and the fat? It always belonged, all of it to God. It's the richest part. God always gets the best. And so when they just take the fat even, that's outrageous. That, that, they could never eat the fat. That was always God's, but they didn't care what was God's. Because they were the priests, they had control, and so they ate what they wanted to. And even, even sometimes that would be stealing from the worshiper. Because with the peace offerings, the worshiper got to eat apart. But not if the priest wanted. <laughs> they just got whatever they wanted. If a worshiper objected and said, now you've got to burn the fat, fat first, you know, they, they wouldn't care. It's kind of 
really sad to see the ordinary worshipers who seem to be more careful <coughs> than the priests. The priests are the ones that ought to have known the rules about the sacrifices, but their freelancing approach shocked these ordinary worshipers who tried to object and they wouldn't let them. Now, isn't that the danger of people who get too familiar with the things of God? I mean, sometimes, you know, like preachers and teachers and even just Christians just get this idea that, you know, we kind of are the owner of this stuff. And, you know, it just becomes a business to us. You know, and so we get what we can. We do what we can. We can never have that attitude. <laughs> Serving the Lord must never be our business. It's always something we do with great respect for God. Because God is just a great God. And we really need to respect Him. Thoughts and comments on that section? Also shows where we don't need to follow blindly to just people that are older or maybe more experienced or something like that. Yeah, it's a shock to think that the priests are the ones doing this. I mean, sometimes you kind of just sort of assume they're going to be the ones doing the right thing, but not here. Sadly. Other thoughts? Yeah. Uh, it really brings to mind the, a, a real testament to how bad Israel has gotten. Because it, it gets to the point where the sons, the priests themselves, are corrupt. Not just the people, but the priests, the people who are supposed to be dedicated to God for their entire lives, who are meant to, you know, administer to the people, who are supposed to teach, who are supposed to supervise the sacrifices, even they're corrupt. And that just brings to mind how much Samuel is having to go into. This is the world, this is the Israel that Samuel has to deal with. Doesn't have great models, does he? You ever kind of excuse yourself because, well, all the older Christians I know, they don't do what's right. Roger? Yeah, I just think, like, uh, it's interesting they're taking from God. I think God is such a giving God, such a merciful God, such a gracious God, that a lot of times our attitude is, well, how can I use God to really benefit my life? And we just, a lot of times we just use God to get what we want, to be at the places where we want to be, and we just abuse God and abuse His grace. Instead of thinking like Samuel did, how can I give God? How can I serve God? How can I better his kingdom? A lot of times, it's the, the kingdom is serving us instead of us serving the kingdom. Yeah, sometimes we almost use God just to sort of exalt ourselves, you know, to make ourselves, you know, more impressive. You know, we'll, we'll preach or teach something and try to do it in such a way that people think we're really smart and we're really great. That's robbing from God the honor and glory he deserves. Seth? Uh, since the priests were you know, obviously doing the wrong, were the sacrifices still beneficial for the, the people who were giving the sacrifices? Were they reconciled to, to God? Or, or you know, did it accomplish for those individuals? God, the condemnation God gives in this chapter is of the priests. So I, that's probably all I can say. Now the whole nation will be defeated in chapter 4 in battle. But I don't know much what else to say than that. Somebody got a better answer than that? <coughs> yes? Well, you guys answered Hannah's prayer. So Anelka and Hannah are doing this. I guess it's good for them. Yeah, good point. Thank you.
All right, well, 18 to 25. Sadie was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with linen ephod. And his mother used to make him, used to make, used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year and send him out with her husband to offer the holy sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing and all, to all of them, and how they lay with the women who were serving in the entrance to the tent of the meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all these people. No, my son, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against the man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. Or it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Okay, so Samuel is again, verse 18, doing what? <clears throat> yeah, he's serving before the Lord. Uh, Hannah, Hannah comes up every year, brings him a little robe. Every time they come up uh, annually for this sacrifice. And, and Eli blesses her and, and uh, you know, ask God to give her children. She does. She has three sons and two daughters. And again, the end of verse 21, the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Looks like he's doing okay. But Eli's sons, oh my. What were they doing besides, you know, abusing their power and uh, robbing the sacrifices? Yeah, with these female tabernacle servants. And Eli hears about it. He says, I'm hearing this bad report of you boys. Naughty, naughty, naughty. You shouldn't do that. And he does say something quite right. He says, you know... If you sin against somebody else, you can turn to God to mediate. But who do you turn to when you cut yourself off from your only link to forgiveness? When you cut yourself off from God, then what do you do? Uh, that's a really good question. There's really nobody else to turn to. So he tells them the right thing. He gives them a reprimand. You know, we'll see in the next section, but it's so easy to just stop at that. You know, we, we, well, I told my children they shouldn't do that. Well, God's going to expect more of Eli than that. What could Eli have done? He put his sons to death. Yeah. <laughs> and if not that, even a less extreme measure would have been better, which would have been what? Yeah. And maybe even what else? Yes, he is the high priest. He could unpriest them, it looks to me like. You know, wouldn't that have been a wise, righteous thing for him to have done? But no, he just says you shouldn't do that. Now we'll think about that more in the next section. But parents sometimes don't, don't deal with their children as firmly as they need to. Understand that Eli can't make his sons be righteous men. 
And he doesn't have to tolerate them as under priests when they're behaving this way. And him just saying you shouldn't do that is not going to satisfy the Lord that Eli did what he ought to have done. Justin. Just me or does it look like it sound like Eli is more concerned with what he's hearing and what's getting out than the actual sin that they're committing? That may be true too. That's a good point. I mean, sometimes we do that. Well, I'm just really upset about what the brethren are finding out about what you're doing. You're making me look bad, kid. Is that the message we give to our children? Don't you do that where there's another brother who can see that? Our kids pick up on that really quick. You know I know a lot of young people. You know, I hear that all the time. They see their parents as wanting them not to embarrass them before other Christians more than they see their parents wanting them to serve God before God. We have to think about that. You young people think about your children that you will raise. Are you going to raise them mostly thinking you want them to look good and not make you look bad? You're going to raise them wanting them to honor God. Our children tell the difference. I think that may be right. I think he may be mostly worried that everybody's finding out what wicked men they really are. Kind of political. Yeah. A reputation. Other thoughts? <coughs> yes. I think Eli was just giving up on his sons because I think now a lot of his parents are saying, well, I can't spank them anymore. I can't punish them by taking away money. Uh, or if they fall away, there's nothing that they can do. Well, sometimes it's a parental cop-out. Yeah, I think he may say, well, you know, I did what I could. But we see there's more he could have done. We can't make our children arrive. But we can take a stronger stand than just saying naughty, naughty. You know, because our children, you know, you know how kids are. They learn that, well, you know, your parents are just going to say something. Yeah, it's just words. You know, when, it, when there's no teeth behind it, then they don't really have to act. Let's look at the next section. I think we're going to see that a lot more in this. And that this may help us kind of reflect on what's being said here. Would somebody go ahead and read 26 to 36? Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord, and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father, when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings and my fire to the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. 
but only one of you, whom I shall not cut off from my altar, shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of him. And this that took, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phineas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my, before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Well, 26 Samuel! What's he doing? Growing in stature and in favor with both the Lord and with man. Does that remind you of anything? Jesus. You know, that's very close to what was said about Jesus over in Luke chapter 2. Now, interestingly, uh, there's a couple passages in Luke chapter 2 about Jesus. Verse 40, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. But especially 52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's interesting that Samuel foreshadowed Jesus. He's kind of a parallel to Jesus. In fact, there's a really cool way in which Samuel parallels Jesus. We often speak about Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Was Samuel a prophet? Was he a priest? Yes. Was he a king? Sort of. Not quite. They didn't have a king, but he was the last judge before they had kings. He was the executive officer, although it wasn't quite a king. In these, you see, he's not quite up to Jesus, but he's kind of along the same lines. I think Samuel is a foreshadow, a shadow that God designed of Jesus. So that's really cool to see that. But then there's this man of God. There's quite a few times when prophets are simply designated in the Old Testament as men of God without a name being given. So I don't know what his name was. But there's a man of God, this prophet that comes to Eli and says, you know, in verse 28, look, here's what I chose you priests to do. To go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry the ephod. And what have you done? You have not properly honored me in the sacrifices. And in fact, look at what he accuses Eli and his sons of in verse 29. What does he accuse them of? What does that tell you that we didn't know yet? Eli was in on it too. Well, in on it in what sense? He was eating it. He just wasn't taking it. You know, they stole the fat of the sacrifices that belonged to God, and Eli enjoyed it along with them. <laughs> Is there something wrong with that? You know, I mean, you didn't steal the money. You just shared in it. You know, you just, you, you fenced the stuff or whatever. 
I mean, are you guilty too? Yeah. I mean, wow. So, so you tell your children, you know, you really shouldn't steal that money, but then that you let them buy you things with that money that you live a better life. You know, that's kind of what it amounted to. Eli was in on this more than we even realized. Now, we're going to find later. Uh, do you know anything about Eli's physique? <laughs> he was a large guy, and that seems to have contributed to his death. So it may be that he dies partially as a result of getting fat off of these sacrifices. That would certainly be an appropriate punishment. And, and God says in verse 30, you know, I said that the, your house would walk before me forever. But you breached the contract. Therefore, I'm not bound by its terms anymore. And the days are coming when I'm going to bring terrible distress. I'm going to cut you off. And the sign will be, verse 34, your two sons will die in one day. And verse 35, but I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to all uh, to, to what is in my heart and in my soul. I will build him an enduring house. So I'm going to... I'm going to take your family out of the priesthood and I'm going to pick the priest, a faithful priest, to do everything I want. Who was that? That this man of God was predicting the faithful priest that he would raise up for himself. Samuel. That's probably what we first think in this context. Sounds like Jesus. I think it was in the ultimate sense. But do you know who the Old Testament says it was? Somebody know? First Kings 2? It was Zadok. Now I'm not trying to disallow the others. I think all three answers are true. I think this is a triple fulfillment prophecy. But when Solomon dismissed Abiathar in 1 Kings 2.27 from being priest to the Lord in order to fulfill the word of the Lord which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Silo, Abiathar was the last surviving priest of Eli's line. When he dismisses Abiathar, the whole priesthood goes over to Zadok. Zadok seems to have been the faithful priest. You might also look at Ezekiel 44 which depicts the Zadokite, Zadokite line of priests as being faithful. So I think this prophecy, the faithful priest, was Samuel immediately, Zadok in the future when Eli's family was taken out of the priesthood, but ultimately Jesus, who was the ideal faithful priest. I really think that prophecy has a triple fulfillment. Well, comments and questions on chapter 2. Is this another, like, uh, God exalts uh, Samuel, but humbles, uh, like, the, like, Eli and his sons? Yeah, absolutely. Who's got the power? They're the ones that are brought down. Samuel's the one that's lifted up. Absolutely. Josh? I find it curious that in verse 21, it wasn't until seemingly years later that Hannah is physically rewarded for what she had done with Samuel and is blessed with more children. I think that's interesting because maybe it was a testing period to see how she might react to Samuel. I'm not sure if there's anything there with that. And the fact is we don't know really how long it was. Yeah. But maybe so. Yes. Ooh. Yes, Ted. Um, how much can we apply Eli and his sons to New Testament um, discipline? Or just 
people in the church not doing what they ought to do? And how responsible are we and things like that? Well, I mean, certainly Eli is condemned for not really restraining his children. And, you know, when we don't take a stand when our children aren't doing what's right, we just say, oh, that's not good. Then it seems to me like we're being like Eli. You know, and we may even join with them in some of their wrong things. It's amazing to me how many parents almost follow their children into doing wrong things because they don't want to condemn their children. They want, don't want, you know, that they'll almost support their children over the Lord and, and their children almost drag them down. You know, it's a tragedy when our children aren't what they ought to be. But the best thing we can do about that is we be what we ought to be and in no way give support or approval to them when they're not. That's the best thing. Well, and, and, you know, the man of God says you honor their sons before him. And, you know, that's an example for us not to put our children before God. Amen. Amen. You know, we love our children. But sometimes what we love is ourselves. We want a comfortable, enjoyable relationship with our children. If you loved your child, you would want to do anything you could to help him be faithful to God. If you love yourself, you may just not want to confront and not want to deal firmly because it's going to make things tense and uncomfortable and not so fun. We really need to love our children and not tolerate like Eli did their wickedness. Larry? You know, you wonder on occasion, you know, you, you've seen preachers that have taken stands through the years on certain issues, you know, whether institutionalism or divorce or remarriage, and something happens that the kids go through divorce and a scriptural divorce and other things, and they begin to back off on some of the stands they took. You know, and again, I don't always know everybody's motive. You know, we can't, you know, when the straightest gate narrows the way, you can't make the kingdom any wider than God made it. You don't want to make it any wider. You don't want to make it any narrower. But again, we often do that because people we love, we want to squeeze into the kingdom. We, you can't you can't preach anybody to them. You can't squeeze them into heaven. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, this idea, well, I just don't want to condemn my children. Wait a minute. We have nothing to do with that. You know, if we acknowledge they're not what they ought to be and we are firm with them in dealing with that, we're not condemning them. It's going to be God that's going to judge them and he's going to judge them by the same standard no matter what we say or do. So that's exactly right. Very good point. Yes, Josh? Uh, do you have anything to say maybe about verse 36? Well, um, I mean, he's just saying things are going to be really bad. Now, um, in verse 5 of chapter 2, uh, Hannah had said, those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. So she sees this kind of a reversal. Well, in verse 36, everyone who's left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please assign me to one of the priests' offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. So he's saying they're going to... God's going to get, do this big reversal and they're going to be baking bread. It's kind of like reaping what you sow. Here they are eating, eating stuff they're not supposed to be so God will take away even the bread from them. They won't have anything to eat. 
<laughs> Who was the anointed in two verse ten at the end of that and in uh, and in two verse thirty five? Um, well, I think the king, which perhaps thinking mostly about David and his lineage and then ultimately Jesus. But the anointed one was normally the king, the, 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 the Messiah, really. But thinking of that in terms of the kings that they were searching for. Good questions, good comments. <coughs> All right, chapter 3, um, let's go ahead and read 1 to 14. The boy Samuel 